Hello and welcome to the After Dinner Podcast. My name is Jay Swords and this is the podcast extension for ROI Show 499. Our guest today is Shelley Puhak, author, and we are going to talk about her book, The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. The history buffs for today are Brett Menard and Ed Broders. Ed, start us off. Thanks, Jay. Shelley, can you give us um, a little background uh, as far as you know how you picked this topic to write about? Um, and I'm curious about when you, when you decided that, um, where do you look? for information. There doesn't seem to be a shortage in Europe of libraries with really, really old books. So how do you know where to look, and when do you know that you don't need to look anymore? Those are all great questions, and I I have to tell you guys, uh, I have to confess that I stumbled across this story by accident. I thought I was writing a completely different book about a Viking queen who had this longstanding rivalry with the king of Norway. And I found a mention in one of my um, sources that said something to the effect, obviously I'm, I'm updating it, but you know, if you think the rivalry between this queen and the king of Norway was bad, wait until you hear about this rivalry between Brunhild and Fredegund. And I was completely intrigued and fell down the rabbit hole and ended up with this book. Um, and as far as where to look... I consulted about 50 primary sources um, and quite a few you know, secondary sources. But for the primary sources, what's really fascinating is although a lot of sources did not survive from this particular time period, there are these eyewitness accounts that we, you know, you just happen to luck into. And one of these is by a bishop who knew both queens um, and was, you know, going to dinner with them and then going home and writing in his journal. You're not going to believe what happened tonight. <laughs> uh, and and there were also accounts by others of their contemporaries that just happened to survive. And some of those manuscripts have been digitized. Others have been translated. So that's really, um, really amazing. And then there were also some letters um, of Brunhild that have survived and other sort of extraneous materials like that i have to say like for people doing historical research this is a golden era because i ended up having to do a lot of this research during the first stage of the pandemic when all the libraries were closed and luckily um the british library uh the you know national library of france have digitized a lot of these medieval manuscripts so you can view quite a few of these you know from the comfort of your own home and I was also forced, and it turned out really well for me, to kind of reach out where I might not ordinarily to a lot of other specialists and scholars and say, well, I can't get this source. You know, what else should I look at? Where, where should I be looking? And they pointed me to some really fabulous sources um, that I wouldn't have probably, you know, stumbled on on my own, or if I had, it would have taken me another year or two. As far as when to stop, I'm the wrong person to ask because I had to stop when, you know, my editor was like, there's a deadline. Like, you, you know, I, I'm one of those people that's revising the book and wanting to add things in up until the 11th hour. I could probably, you know, still be writing this book if they would have let me. And um, tell us about, uh, did you have to learn a new language or do you hire a translator? Because some of this stuff is pretty old and languages change. Yeah. So I, 
can read enough French and enough Latin to kind of, you know, get the gist of things. And then I would hire translators, you know, to when I figured out this is the document that I wanted. If it didn't already exist in a translation, I would bring someone in. And oftentimes I would bring in multiple translators because, for example, the Latin that the Franks are using is not classical Latin. Like they're inventing words and putting them in there. Like the the classicist I had doing some of the translations was literally pulling his hair out saying like this doesn't this isn't how you this isn't how you you know are supposed to write latin like this doesn't make any sense they're conjugating everything wrong so it was oftentimes a group effort of having a few minds really look at a passage a couple times and figure out the meaning (laughs) brett well good to know that you know high school latin teachers who are used to poor conjugations have a (laughs) opportunity there for a side hustle um so we touched on this a little bit at the very tail end of the radio broadcast um later on in the middle ages the church becomes a very powerful and influential political entity but less so at this time period so what role was the church playing in politics uh, with these ladies? What I love about this time period is it's so hugely influential, and it seems to be the origin story of some of the debates that we're still puzzling through today with religion. So this is a time period where the church is figuring out how it relates to the state, and there are all these arguments between kings and bishops where you know, bishops are excommunicating kings, and kings are saying, wait, you can't do that. I'm not going to, I'm going to take your land away. They haven't quite worked out, like, who's in charge. You know, the kings often think the bishops are going to just, like, rubber stamp things or say a blessing before they go off to battle. And the bishops are thinking the king is going to be bowing to their authority. And so they're at loggerheads, like, working out this, is there a separation between church and state? And if so, what should it entail? But this is also the time period when they are literally figuring out what books should constitute the New Testament as we know it. So there are books that are being tossed out and um, and other things that are being included, and they're having this ongoing debate. And so some things that will be considered, you know, uh, acts of heresy in just another, you know, century or so, are at this point like, well, or is it in? Is it out? We have this huge debate over what role women should have in the church. They keep outlawing women serving as deacons, but we have, for example, one of the mother-in-laws of the Queens who is appointed a deacon. So there's kind of this debate about women, and there's also this huge debate going on about whether priests should be celibate. And throughout the book, I can't tell you how many times there's these arguments where they're cracking down because a lot of these priests are married, and they're saying, you can't sleep with your wives anymore, but don't get divorced. Just live like brother and sister. And then the church hierarchy keeps getting upset when that doesn't work out as well as they think it should. And they're constantly excommunicating <laughs> these <laughs> priests for sleeping with, you know, their wives that they've oftentimes been married to for 20, 30 years. <laughs> yeah, ha- some habits are hard to break. What can we say? <laughs> <laughs> what, was that intentional or... <laughs> Happy app accident. Okay. <laughs> um, so, whenever you have people that are as influential as these as these two ladies are, I always find it interesting to see how the the generation or two 
after them sees them. So, so how do they show up in the literature um, or, or the histories that are being written in, say, maybe the, the 50 years after um, their deaths? I would imagine it'll be slightly different for the two of them, but how in general are they, are they looked at? One thing that I found fascinating is that even though Fredegon's son is the one sitting on the throne, he erases both of them from the public records. Like in the, you know, kind of civic records, things that are like either taxes, just really boring bureaucratic accounts, he gets rid of both of them as if neither of them ever existed. Like kind of just skips over both of them. Nothing happened during their reigns at all. Even the most boring things like, you know, a weather event, a flood, like nothing. So there's this attempt to erase them from history. We see an attempt to rewrite, in that 50 years, Brunhild's legacy. You can literally look at manuscripts and, you know, an earlier one juxtaposed next to a slightly later one, one that's written just, you know, 20 years later. And you can see how certain passages have been taken out and others have been put in. So, like, all of a sudden there's prophecies where she's, you know, like a witch and... Um, has done these like really horrific things and God hates her, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what's also fascinating is we know that there are women working behind the scenes to preserve their stories. And I found that really heartening. Like one of the ways that we have as much material as we do about Fredegon's battle exploits seems to be because there was a particular convent where the nuns recorded the story. They've been able to kind of trace that, that there's somebody codifying all of those details back to this convent. Okay, Ed. Yeah, um, as far as the uh, inner circle of trusted advisors for both of these women, uh, were those inner circles all men, or did some of the women actually manage to come out of uh, from behind the scenes and have a more or less public position uh, as an advisor to these, either of these queens? We don't have women serving as like with a titled public advisor, but we do know that there are women that are involved. So, for example, we know that Brunhild is working actively with her daughter and her mother on a lot of political projects. They're obviously titled, you know, titled women. So one is, you know, a queen, and the other one she's, she's trying to marry off to become a queen. But what's also interesting is we have these treaties um, where we know, for example, we have one where Brunhild is fighting for legal protections for other women in her family, ensuring that after her death, they will be financially independent, they can't be forced into a convent, they can keep their property. So we do get a sense of these support networks, and we also know plots on both sides um, against Brunhild's life and against Fredegon's life that are foiled by their female friends. So these are trusted women who serve a role in the palace, but they're not necessarily like leading um, an army or holding uh, like a formal title, like a, like a duke. Um, but there is that sense that they are just the tip of the iceberg and and there are all of these other women just below the surface that are helping essentially ensure that they stay in power. All right, Brett, you get the last question. Oh, boy. So we know that in this period, um, marriages were used very frequently for political alliances, and at least in uh, Brunhilde's case, from how you've 
described, she's starts out with one of these political marriages. Did either of these two ladies um, use female relatives to their advantage? Were they uh, fairly ruth? Were they as ruthless as their male counterparts could be, as far as ensuring a political alliance, regardless of whether or not uh, the uh, members of the marriage were really all that keen to go along with it? Um, that's difficult to say. They certainly use their daughters and nieces, like female relatives, as political pawns. Like we have, you know, Brunhild probably arranging the marriage of her niece Bertha to Athelbert of Kent, and that's kind of how we get Christianity in, in a roundabout way into, um, you know, what we now know as England. Um, and also both of them trying to arrange the marriages of their daughters with varying degrees of success. So we don't get a sense of how unhappy or happy their, their uh, female relatives were with the choice. Although there is one suggestion that Brunhild opted to marry her daughter off to a lower-ranking duke, but with somebody that she knew and had a prior relationship with, which one could speculate might have been a deliberate choice to take a hit in prestige, but to make sure that her daughter wouldn't be sent off like her sister was and, you know, end up murdered in a foreign land or in a terribly unhappy alliance because in this way she could kind of keep an eye on her. All right. Well, we'd like to thank our guest for this 499th show, Shelley Puhak, author who talked about her book, The Dark Queens, The Bloody Rivalry That Forged the Medieval World. The history buffs for today's show were Brett Menard and Ed Broders. ROI can be found at 9.30 p.m. Friday nights on KALA Radio or on the web at TuneIn.com. If you're looking for older programs, you'll find them at SoundCloud.com. Just put KALA Radio, all one word, in the search, click on the first icon, and scroll down to find nearly a decade of ROI shows. And you can also find ROI on all of your favorite streaming platforms. ROI is recorded at station KALA, St. Ambrose University. University.